The Anton Savage Show on News Talk. Now, time for legal advice. Sonia McEntee from uh, McEntee Solicitors is with us and she is also, of course, chair of the Law Society uh, PR Committee. And as always, when Sonia knocks around, we are neck deep in queries. So we will um, try to get through as many as possible. Hopefully all of them you will understand, Sonia, because I don't, including the first one that says, can someone whose enduring power of attorney has been activated change their will or make a new will? What does that mean? Okay, well, maybe we should talk about what an enduring power of attorney is for a moment. Um, So an enduring power of attorney is when a person can nominate someone to act on their behalf in the event that they become mentally incapacitated. So we've touched on this before. Why why would you do this if you think this is never going to be going to apply to me or it doesn't apply to me? And very often this is associated maybe with older people. But in the event that you cannot become um, in the event that you become mentally incapacitated, um, you do need someone who can take those decisions for you. And things like access bank accounts so that care can be provided for you. So take someone who may have found themselves in an accident, someone who's had a stroke. Um, we hear all the time about um, early onset of other kinds of um conditions that people can suffer from. So <clears throat> that's but what the attorney is. And th- this question therefore means if somebody who has surrendered that or gifted that power of attorney to another individual and it has been triggered, meaning they are no longer compass mentis to maintain yeah. their own um, accounts or make their own decisions to that degree, can they then unpick their own will? I s- well, well tricky. Uh, uh, um, I suppose in broad terms, the, the answer would be no. But to go back to the process, when you're making an enduring power of, of attorney, two of the key parts of that process are firstly that um, a letter is obtained from your medical practitioner. So your GP most likely to say that you are competent to do what you're doing at the time because you are nominating someone you know, into a position of absolute trust to look after you in the event that you can't do it for yourself. The second part is that uh, is a sign off by a solicitor to say that the solicitor is satisfied that you understand also what you're doing. If that enduring power of attorney is registered subsequently, that's also on foot of a letter from a medical practitioner to certify that you either are or are becoming incapable of managing your affairs. So it cannot be registered until that situation arises and until that medical sign off is there. So those safeguards are built into that process. But yes, once it's registered, I suppose it's on the High Court record that you are not um, mentally capable of making these decisions. But well, let's imagine that I have given you power of attorney and I get to the point where it's now on record that I'm no longer capable of my decision. Yeah. If I go to you and say, listen, here's those changes I want to make to the will. Have you the capacity to make those changes then? Oh, well, if I'm aware that your enduring power of attorney has been registered, I wouldn't undertake No, that. no, I mean, if you are the person who yeah. is the who now has power of attorney, if, if okay. you are the, the loved one who has power of attorney, yeah. can that person say, I understand that there is enough um, mental capacity there for them to know that they are right in this decision. I'll therefore facilitate them changing their no, will. I, no, I don't think that's there on the, par- on the part of the attorney at all. And I think that in those circumstances, if the individual themselves felt that they were competent to make a new will, they'd have to look at having the um, enduring power deregistered effectively um, and that's an application into the, that's an application to the High Court currently. Now we might be able to come back to this topic another time because there are changes in legislation afoot and lots of them are going to take effect at the end of April so it might be worth coming back to this later on. But I think in, the, in these circumstances um, capacity is the key issue here and if you're on record as having lost that mental capacity well then that's a key requirement for making a will and no you wouldn't be able to make a will. Interesting one here in relation to wills as well. Are family members 
who are not mentioned in a will entitled to see the bank statements of the deceased? Oh no, well, 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 my view on this would be would be no. Um, but that said, there may be other reasons why people are willing to share information. And if they are, that, you know, that may well be the case. Um, the executors are the people who are charged with administering the estate once someone has has died. And it is for them then to manage, gather in all of the information, including the likes of bank statements and um And how much of that has made public sense? Because I'm always intrigued when you yeah. read those stories to say X or Y famous person has died, leaving yeah. in a state of X. You think, yeah. How does that end up in the public um, well, well, wills, once they're admitted to probate, are actually documents of public record. So, for example, if you think about archived records, you can go and access uh, those archived, uh, archived records, make application make application for them. So they're not published in the same way that they used to be years ago, but um, but that it does become public information. So you can access the terms of someone's will. That doesn't necessarily tell you how much someone has um, or, or, di- or didn't have. But um, in terms of the grant of probate, the figures that are stated on the face of the grant of probate are gross estate and don't take account of debts, for example. So um, in times gone past, when you would have seen um, such person died leaving an estate of two million, you, they may have had and debts, debts of, of two point one <laughs> million, and, and you didn't know that, you know. From, from and I assume that in in that instance, your creditors take precedence over those named in your will. They get paid off, do they, from the estate it, it, before? It, it's it's almost like the winding up of a business if you look at it in that way. So um, assets are gathered in, liabilities are discharged. The executors will attend to publishing notices to make sure that anyone who considers themselves to be creditors of the estate have the opportunity to make their claim from the estate. There are strict time periods around doing all of that because, you know, the executor has to be given the opportunity to to wind up the estate and to to move move on with it and then to distribute anything that might be that might be left. And again, the la- funny, the last day that I was here, there was a query over what if the work hasn't been done after two years or two. And a- this might be one of those kinds of reasons why an estate takes a long, long time to to um, manage and ultimately distribute. Interesting one um, that I, I think suggests somebody is thinking about a possible action. What's the statute of limitations in relation to taking a personal injury action? Um, well, the statute of limit. There are a couple of um, key dates that you need to be aware of. Um, the statute of limitations is two years for taking a, a personal injuries action, and that was that used to be six years, but it was moved back. Was it six years? It used to be. Six so you break years. a leg and you can hang so, around for five and a half years well, before. Well, you... I suppose it, it's a, a claim for negligence, if you like, um, um, that could ultimately be. But what one of the reasons why um, it can take some time to lodge those claims is allowing the implications of any injury to settle, um, so that you know what it is that you're dealing with at the time that you make that claim. So the Personal Injuries Assessment Board, though, is also there. So it's not just about the statute of limitations. The um, Personal Injuries Assessment Board, that process must be must be accessed in the first instance. And while the application is going through there, the statute of limitations is formally put on hold. Um, and either... Oh, the it's process, put on hold while you go through the PIA process, you go through that process. While you go through that process. So um, either the issue will be resolved through PIAB or or it won't, in which case you'll then consider... But is PIAB not predicated on somebody accepting that there is no liability issue or rather that liability has been accepted by it, one party? It, that, that's certainly one circumstance. And and I mean, that was one of the reasons why PIAB was brought, was brought to be that if... if um, matters can be resolved at an early stage in the process. You know, there shouldn't be need for legal proceedings. There shouldn't be need for 
I suppose the lawyers cost so much of this is, is political, as you know as well, um, Anton. But certainly where liability is admitted, there should be no reason why, um, you know, something like that isn't resolved at an early stage. And then it comes down to, to quantum, which is the other, the, the financial settlement. All of which is, is public. Again, you can Google Book of Quantum and get a sense of where you are, depending and on what your injury might be. you'll certainly get a sense of, you, you'll certainly get, you can access information now to get a sense of what your injury might be considered to be worth. But again, going back to time, which is where the question started, um, there may be complicating factors in an in, in an injury. There may be there may be um, other injuries that cause you to um, or uh, may exacerbate what it, what is there as well. So it's not always black and white. So sometimes a little bit more advice, but certainly there's information there to give you a sense at the outset, I suppose, what it is that you need to do. Let me give you a good complicated involved one involving liability disputes and several different layers of potential responsibility. I live in a ground floor apartment which was flooded many times in the last few years by the apartment above me. Their bathroom shower, washing machine and water tank, got everything involving water, has leaked into their home, on, on into my home on various occasions. The owner finally allowed the management company in to assess what repairs were needed to stop the leaking. We believe he has organised the repairs as the leaking has stopped but he's now ignoring my calls I would like to get reimbursed for repairs needed to my home he lives in the UK how should I proceed to get reimbursed for damage to my home there you are Sonia you've three and a half minutes to solve that alright okay well well, um, this is <laughs> what a, a nightmare this is what I do on a day to day basis actually is deal with is deal with uh, queries like this so um, there are a couple of key legal relationships to look at here and the first one is with the management company in the building. So the management company owns all of the common areas and where the management company may have failed in its obligations, there may be recourse there. So so just we'll park that for a moment. But remember, your relationship with the management company is based on the lease that you have for your, which is your title deed. All right. So I'm not talking about a short term residential lease talking about your ownership deed for your apartment. And that's a relationship of contract that you have with the management company and the management company has the responsibilities are all set out there. In relation to the um, unit owner upstairs, um, if they have allowed water to leak from there and flood by the sounds of things uh, down into your apartment, they do, of course, have have responsibility here too. Um, where you can't, you mentioned that they're in the UK. So take a situation where you can't identify perhaps the owner or can't locate the owner. So I think maybe that's what, what this is getting at here. Um, the management company should have an up to date record of who the owner is and a current address for them. And that information, the obligation is on every apartment owner to ensure that that information is up to date with the management company. So um, go to the management company first. Um, see if sorry, the, the other part maybe just to mention is around insurances because very often insurance claims will be lodged. And in my experience, the block policies will often pay out on these types of claims, all right, even though under the lease agreements, the, the insurer, the block insurer may then have recourse back to the upstairs apartment owner. But I'm see, this sure is the thing that people want. Pursued, you get this though. thing where you're like, there's a, yeah. a management company, there's an apartment owner, both yeah. of them may have an insurance company, but basically all somebody yeah. wants is, can I just sue one person and yeah. let it become their problem? Um, well, well, the reality in this situation is that if it came to legal proceedings, you would be suing two people. You'd be suing the apartment owner upstairs and you'd be suing the management company. And that's because you as the downstairs apartment owner, you don't necessarily know or can state clearly what exactly the problem was or whose responsibility that problem was. And so you go with and then it's not for you to decide who's responsible. It's for them to sort out between themselves who's responsible and 
and uh, cover you appropriately. A very quick one, just because it's not often you get one where there is such anger evident in the text. I am executor of my mother's will. I got the house. I'm quoting directly. Yeah. My evil sister, who already has millions, wants to put in a legal caveat to get so-called expenses for a stove. What are my options? I want to sell the house still going through probate. Does that suggest that the sister has maybe paid for the stove in the house or I'm, I'm not, I'm not, we leave aside the relationship issue maybe, but, um, it, you know, if do you if, get, well, it, yeah, is, first of all, obviously there is more detail required before that it'd be answered. But yeah. let me just to get a sense, is that kind of anger common in probate? Um, um, you would see it from time to time. Um, there are very, you know, family disputes can it may be in existence long before somebody passes away and particularly maybe where there has been long term care maybe provided for a parent or that kind of situation. Some people feel that they've been um, unduly burdened, that they've had to do too much of the caring and then a will is is um, becomes available and maybe that person feels very hard. But in this in instance as executor, how, probably best to go see a solicitor well, directly. Well, in, in that, if there's potential for a dispute there, absolutely. Sonia, thank you as always. And as always, there are buckets that we didn't get through. I apologise if you texted us and WhatsApp us and we didn't get to. We will get them, gather them up and try to get Sonia to answer them the next time she's in. The Anton Savage Show, Saturday morning at nine on News Talk.